Lori and I, my wife, um, we have a daughter, um, Hannah. Uh, she, when she was little, was um, when we went to all of our prenatal appointments, they did the sonograms and all those kind of things. And, <clears throat> and they had told us early on that there was, um, some pro- there was a problem even before she was born. So uh, they had done a sonogram and they noticed that there was something just not right. There was some kind of birth defect. In fact, I'll show you a picture of our, our daughter, Hannah, here. So that's her baby, one of her baby pictures. So she's very happy there. But a lot of times um, when she was uh, an infant, she was not quite that happy uh, because uh, what had happened is so they, they told us there was a potential birth defect. And then so when she was born, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the doctor checked her out and said, well, everything looks pretty normal here. So I think she's good to go. So we're like, okay, that's fine. And uh, so a couple months later, she would get sick. And she would run a fever, you know, like all babies do occasionally when they get the flu or get sick. And so she would, she would get a common cold, but she would have a really hard time getting over it. She just had a difficult time moving past just having a cold. It would usually get worse and worse as time went on. And so we took her back to the doctor and they said, well, the birth defect that we thought wasn't, wasn't existent um, actually is a problem. Um, she had a uh, there's a flap um, near your kidneys. Um, I don't know how, I'm not a doctor, so I have no idea how this works, but there's a little flap near your kidneys, and, it, and it, what it does is it opens and closes, and it keeps the toxins um, from your kidneys away from your system. Well, for whatever reason, this birth defect was that this little flap didn't work right, so it would open, and it would, it would, the, all the toxins would back up back into her body, and so she would get sick, and then she wouldn't be able to fight the infections off right. And so what would happen is she would get sick, just a common cold, and then she'd get sicker and sicker, and then the toxin would build up, and then her, she would become septic. And so we'd, tr- we'd go to the doc- we were at the doctor all the time. We were trying out new antibiotics all the time, going through rounds and rounds, and, and um, <clears throat> they'd have to put a catheter on her. It was just, I mean, for an infant, it's miserable. She still doesn't like the doctor to this day, because she just, it just, it's just a horrible thing when you have an infant and you're, and you're doing all these things. So um, it got so bad at one point that um, she was so septic and, you know, her body is just not fighting off this stuff that we ended up in the, in, uh, in the emergency room. And so they admitted her into the hospital. So we talked to a doctor and they said, yeah, this, this birth defect, we've, we've got to fix this like right away. Because if she continues to get septic, she could eventually die if you don't, if you don't know how to, she can't fight off all this sickness, right? And so they scheduled a, um, a surgery for her. Um, <clears throat> and I remember it pretty vividly. We were in the, in the, um, um, you know, the uh, ICU and <clears throat> they were trying to put IVs. I, I mean, we're talking about she's months old, okay? And they're trying to put IVs in her arm and she kept blowing out all of her veins in her arms. So they end up putting the IV on top of her head. That was when you lose it as a parent. You're just like, oh my gosh, this is like, because they're shaving a little part of her head to put the IV in. My wife is just beside herself. She's crying and it's just horrible. It's just horrible. And so we had the surgery um, and, uh, and everything's great. So she's, you know, in her 20s now, she's married and she's healthy and great, right? But let me just tell you this. If, if you're a parent, you know this, but if you're not, let me just give you just a, a little heads up. When your child is sick, like when, when your child is sick, and sometimes it doesn't matter how sick they are, but when your child is sick, 
um, especially for our Hannah. There is absolutely nothing that I would not have done to make her better. There's absolutely nothing I wouldn't have done. There's nothing I wouldn't have paid. There's nothing, uh, no distance that I would not have gone to make sure that she got better. There is, there's nothing in my life that I would not have traded to make her better. Nothing. And, and those of you who are parents, you can attest like when, you're, when, when your child is sick, especially when, when you're frantic that, and, and you feel incredibly helpless and hopeless in those moments, you will do almost anything to make sure that they're well. I really believe that that's where the Apostle Paul is at when he approaches um, Romans chapter 10. Is that he's approaching uh, a people in whom he sees as completely helpless and hopeless. They are sick beyond um, belief. They are so sick that they're, they're, they're moving towards death. They're, they're like walking through life as corpses because they keep moving and moving closer to death, right? And, and so I believe the Apostle Paul, he approaches Romans chapter 10, verse 1, and we're going to look at this passage, like he's approaching people who are so desperately in need of a cure. And so the way he begins it is he says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. My heart's desire and my prayer is for the Israelites that they might be saved. And I believe what Paul is doing is he's giving us an insight, a picture, because he understands perfectly what it's like to, to know someone and know that they're headed towards eternal suffering and shame and separation from God. I think it, what this does is it gives us the fire for why we do missions. It gives us kind of this first why. Like, why, why do we engage in evangelism? Why do we engage in overseas missions and church planning? Why is it? It's because there are people that we love. There's people that we love, that we earnestly pray for. They come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We know where they're headed. We know the suffering, we know that without this cure, they will not be saved. For Paul, it's his heart's desire. You have to understand, when Paul's writing this, he's, it's not some kind of heart desire, it's not this kind of, well, I feel bad, or it's not some kind of prayer that he's praying that it's in obscurity. When he's praying this, I believe he's thinking about people, it's like real people that he loves and cares for. I believe when Paul's writing this, he's, he's thinking about those people. He, he's specifically talking about um, the Israelites, but he's thinking about the Jews in which I'm sure over his entire lifetime that he's had contact with, he may be thinking about his own family members who don't know Jesus. He may be thinking about some of his old classmates in rabbinical school. He may be thinking about the people that he, he worked with side by side, the Sadducees and the Pharisees of whom he was friends with. Been talking about his, maybe thinking about his neighbors, but this is not some kind of abstract view for Paul. This is real people, real people in whom he loves and cares for. 
See, Paul would have been, you know, immersed in the Jewish culture. And when he came out of that culture and as a religious leader, he left all of those folks behind in whom did not know Jesus, didn't know the saving grace of Jesus. So I, I believe that he understands, as we should, that, that when we talk about missions, when we talk about evangelism, that it's not just some abstract people group somewhere, but it's real people, real people in whom we know, that we care for, that we know that, that without the saving grace of Jesus, they're going to be trapped in captivity going to be held in their sin. It's not about a program. It's about real people. It's a salvation of our friends, our family, our co-workers, our neighbors, fellow students. These are real people. So who is this that comes to mind for you? That you know, like my my heart's desire and my fervent prayer is for this person. Is there someone that comes to mind when you think about someone that does not know Jesus? For me, um, of course, when, <clears throat> uh, when our kids were younger, the first and primary um, people in whom my wife Lori and I um, had our most fervent prayers and um, and, our, and our most um, deepest des- heart desires were for our own children. So we have three children. We have uh, Hannah, who you saw the picture of. She's our youngest. Uh, we have Jonah, who's our uh, middle son. <clears throat> and then we have Noah. And uh, they're all out of the house. They're all, um, you know, um, two of them are married. Um, Jonah's still single, but they're, they're all out of the house. But when they were younger... Um, Our heart's desire and our most fervent prayers were for our own children to come to faith in Christ. Now, I've been a pastor for 30 years, but um, if if you grew up a PK or MK, you know, pastor's kid or missionary kid, it's not just some, um, you know, foregone conclusion that your kids are going to come to faith in Christ. It's not, okay? Um, And so it was our most fervent prayer, and it wasn't because I... Uh, you know, would have felt ashamed or anything like that as a pastor. It was just like, we wanted our kids to really know Jesus and, and to make their faith their own and not just some kind of, you know, part of what we do and who we are as, a, as, as uh, believers, as Lori and I. So <clears throat> that was our most fervent prayer. And so when the kids were growing up, um, we would find opportunities to share the gospel with them, to help them understand what it meant to, to give their hearts to Jesus and... Um, but we, we didn't force them. We just had open conversations. My wife especially, she's just, she was great with our kids. Um, like she just would find every opportunity along the way. So it was usually driving to school or, you know, at bedtime or whatever opportunities that she could find. Um, Lori was just awesome at sharing um, just the goodness of Jesus with our kids. And so when our kids, you know, reached the age where they were, you know, kind of rationally thinking through things and asking appropriate questions about um, uh, uh, faith in Christ and especially baptism and those kind of things, and we had, you know, we would sit down and discuss those things. So uh, uh, Jonah was uh, probably about eight years old, and he was asking some really, you know, deep questions about um, 
about Jesus and what it meant to be saved. And so we were answering his questions and asking him questions. And so um, about eight or nine, he decided, like, he, he decided, I believe in Jesus and, and I want to give my heart to Jesus and I want to get baptized. And of course, we're really excited. Um, it's approaching Easter, you know, so it's, we're having lots of those conversations around the house. And so Jonah decides he wants to get baptized on Easter. And we're like, hey, buddy, um, you know, Easter's kind of a, a big day. There's a lot going on. Like, they got a whole choir thing. And so we're, we're not, like, trying to talk him out of it. We're just like, you know, it's kind of a lot going on. And are you sure, you know, Easter, like, some of your family and friends might not be able to come and see you get baptized because it's Easter. And he just very emphatically says, well, um, Jesus rose on the dead on Easter. I think it's probably the best day to get baptized. And we're like, Okay. All right, well, you win. So, um, so we celebrate. It was an awesome moment. And, and if you ever have the opportunity to, to um, lead your, um, a family member to Christ, it is incredible. It is awesome. So I just remember on Easter Sunday morning, Jonah and I getting in the baptistry and baptizing him into Christ to signify as a symbol of what Christ had done in his life as he gave his, his heart to Jesus. And it was just an amazing, amazing day. And it was for all three of our kids. It was awesome. There's something incredible about knowing that God's allowed us to be part of something incredibly, um, (laughs) the most significant moment in a person's life. It's just incredible. And, And it's a joy to be able to participate in that. So, of course, it's, you know, it's our heart's desire. It was our greatest prayer and longing is for our children to come to faith in Christ and really believe in Jesus on their own. It's incredible. But there's been many people over the years um, which I've had the distinct privilege of leading to Jesus. And, uh, but it's not just those who are closest to us that we love. Sometimes it's people that we've not even met, right? That for whatever reason, God knits our hearts together. Uh, I remember um, uh, when I was um, planting our church, our first church, we, um, we had a partnership with a new church plant in um, southern uh, Korea. So it was in Busan, and so we had taken a mission trip there, and we were helping this, this uh, church plant that was connected to an uh, international school there. And so we went, we were teaching English and, and um, <clears throat> to students, international students that were there, and I met this young lady from Vietnam. And so we met, we, you know, she was just there to learn English, but we use this opportunity to share the gospel. At every opportunity, we share the gospel. We use the Bible for English teaching and those kind of things. So I do remember she came, and, and I, for whatever reason, you know when you just have that kind of immediate connection with somebody? And I didn't know her, but we just hit it off right away and would have just really open conversations about the things that we were studying. And it was fascinating because this young lady, she had... Uh, growing up in Vietnam, she didn't know anything about Jesus, had never been to church in her life. But it's in those moments, right, when you have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, that it just, God just fills your heart. Like, it's this thing that Paul says where it's his heart's desire, it's prayer to God for these people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. So it doesn't matter where those people are. Of course, it's the people that are closest to you, your family and your friends that, that our hearts should just be on fire for sharing the good news of Jesus. But sometimes it's people halfway across the world that you've never even met before, that God can stir your hearts and your prayers so that they can come to faith in Christ.
That's where it starts. It starts in prayer. Because I think that's where God stirs our hearts the most, where, where Paul can have this heart's desire in his prayer. It's because it's what kindles that fire within us. Because that's what we do for someone that we love, right? We will do anything. If we, if we have someone that's close to us who is sick and helpless, like we would do anything to help them get well. So why not run to the Father in prayer and passionately plead for our friends, our family, our coworkers? See, it needs to start there. So why don't we actually start there? Why don't we just take a moment... I want you to bow your heads just for a moment. I just want us to pray for maybe someone that comes to mind. Maybe I'm, as I'm talking about my own kids or I'm talking about this young lady in Korea, maybe there's someone that comes to mind for you. Would you just plead with the Father for a moment? Father, we cry out, as Paul did, it is our heart's desire, it's our heart's desire and prayer that whomever whomever the Holy Spirit has brought to mind even today, that God, we pray that their hearts would be open to hearing the good news. that they might willingly surrender themselves to you. And that, God, we might be bold in our sharing of the gospel with them. God, we, we understand that it may not be in our lifetime. In fact, it may not be us who has the privilege of leading them to Jesus, but God, would you, would you use us in some small way help our friends and family members or co-workers, neighbors, whoever it may be that comes to mind for us today, move a little bit closer to you. God, help remind us that it starts in prayer for those in whom we love so dearly that we want to see saved. God, we thank you for the privilege of coming before your throne. In Jesus' name, amen. Seeing someone come to faith in Christ um, that you've been praying for is an awesome thing, right? Because we love them, like we care so deeply for them, and so it's, it's a, such a, an awesome thing. And, and just, again, knowing that, that you've played a small part in that is just an incredible, um, incredible joy. Um, but it, it is not easy, is it? I mean, it is incredibly difficult. There are so many obstacles and barriers for people coming to faith in Christ, and <clears throat> And so what are the ways in which we can acknowledge those to see them? Um, because these obstacles, many times for, for people, are, are just misunderstandings. They're, they're uh, obstacles in their mind or their heart, standing in the way of understanding the gospel in the most simplest of terms. And I believe Paul understood this um, actually in great detail in Romans chapter 10. Um, he understood that the way to life everlasting uh, would be met with all kinds of obstacles. And so he addresses these straight on in verse 2. He says, For how can I testify about them, uh, or for, uh, for 
For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. So he understood that his friends, his family, his co-workers, his people that, in whom he really loved, like they were pursuing something. They were just pursuing the wrong thing. They were pursuing in the wrong direction. They had a misunderstanding about how to have a relationship with, with the Lord. They just had a complete misunderstanding about that. And so why missions? Like why do we engage this? Yes, it is for deep, it's for the people that we love so deeply. It's because we want to see them have a saving knowledge, but it's also because we believe that the gospel saves, that it is powerful, and that it saves people's souls. And it is simple, and it is sweet. But many times, it's misunderstood because people make it more complicated than it needs to be. So I want to illustrate this um, <clears throat> this morning to help us maybe give a, a really simple um, understanding of the gospel. Okay? I'm going to try this. It's a little, too, little new technology this morning, so I'm going to try this, okay? See how it goes. Does it work? Oh, look at that. Nice. Okay. So we understand that our world is broken. Like you don't have to look too far, right, to understand that our, we live in a very broken world. I mean, you read the news or watch the news, you look around you at the lives of people. Um, we understand that, that we live in an incredibly broken world. And that, that was not the intention, right? So we live in a broken world, but we understand that that was not as it was intended to be. Like, God had a, a different kind of design for this world. We, all you have to do is look back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and say, like, this world was intended to be good, and our walk with the Lord was supposed to be um, a beautiful thing in which Adam and Eve walked with the Lord in the cool of the day, like they had this relationship with Him, right? But the problem is that sin... Right when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and through us, like that, that world that was supposed to be so good, and that relationship with the Lord that was supposed to be so sweet, became broken because of because of sin, because of our own sin. It entered the world, and so we have this broken world in which we live in. Now the problem is, is that in this broken world, right, we and those people who um, uh, people who don't, have not given their faith to Christ, right? So before we became believers, we would try to attain this kind of peace and this kind of relationship, but we would do it on our, on our own accord. We would find ways in which we tried to fix the problem, the brokenness in our life. And so we see this even in uh, Romans chapter 10, that we would try to approach it through different kinds of ways, ways in which we could find favor with God. So we see there in verse 3, it says, since they did not know the righteousness of God, right? Because in verse 2, it says they, they did not have the right knowledge. They did not have the true understanding of what it meant to have a relationship with the Lord. So in verse 3, it says, since they did not know the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own. So they tried to do it on their own accord. They like, well, I don't have this relationship, so now I'm going to try my own self-righteousness. I'm going to try to find ways in which I can fix the problem on my own. 
It says they did not submit to God's righteousness. They didn't understand what it meant. And in verse 4, it says, Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So they tried to set up their own righteousness, saying, well, if I just work, if I just do all the right things, if I'm a good person, then somehow I can obtain this way out of this broken life. And so they would pursue, like, trying to fulfill the 613 Old Testament laws, right? But every single time they would pursue one, right, well, you'd break one. The law was never meant to, to lead to righteousness. It was to remind you of your own brokenness and that, that you have a need for a Savior. And so they would find their own righteousness. They would try to do it with obedience to the law, Verse 5, which is such an obscure um, passage of Scripture here, says, Moses writes about this in a righteousness that is by the law. He says, the person who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, you will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. It's kind of a strange passage of Scripture that Paul is using here, but what he's trying to say is that people go to all kinds of extremes, to try to save themselves. He says that they're going to try to descend all the way down to the deep, right? And somehow try to bring Christ up to themselves. Or they're going to try to ascend to the, to the highest heaven so they can bring Christ to themselves. And he's saying, those exercises are exercises of futility. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. He's saying there's a misunderstanding about righteousness, about how you have a relationship with the Lord. And he's saying, those things don't work. Now, you can replace all those things. Those are very specific to the Jews. But you can take those things and these things and and apply them to, right, to all kinds of different ways in which people in this world try to attain salvation or to escape their brokenness or try to satisfy the wrath. It all begins with self-righteousness, like, I can do this on my own. But the wages of sin are death. They are death. But God provides another way. This is what Paul is trying to remind his Jewish friends and family members about. He's saying you cannot use the law or your own self-righteousness to attain a relationship with the Lord. He said you have a, a misunderstanding about how righteousness works. So he reminds us in verse 8, he says, but what does it say? What does it say? What does it actually say that we need to do in order to become righteous? What does it actually say that we need to have a real relationship with the Lord? It is not based on what you do. It is based only on what Jesus has done. He said, the word is near to you. It's so near to you, like it's, it's so close to you. And that's, that's what people miss sometimes. It's like they're trying to grasp at every kind of solution that they possibly can to fix themselves. I'm sick inside. I know I'm helpless and I'm sick. And so they grasp at all kinds of things to, to cure that sickness. And Paul says, no, no, no. The answer, the cure for your sickness, it's so near to you. Like you don't have to try to 
climb for you. You don't have to try to ascend the highest mountain or go into the deepest depths. He's like, it's so close and it's so simple, but you've missed it. He says, it's in your mouth and it's in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. And so we come to Jesus And he says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. See how much more simple it is? If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So we profess and we believe. There's a little lag here. Let's see if it works. Anyway, so we profess. I mean, we confess with our mouth. We confess that I can't do this on my own. That it is impossible for me to attain faith in, or, or eternal salvation. It is impossible for me to have a right relationship with God on my own. So we confess, we profess. Boy, that is really messed up. I do know how to spell, sort of, but that's not how you spell believe. Anyway, just ignore that. But we profess, we confess with our mouth. Jesus is Lord. There is none other. He is the only way. He is the only one that can save me. And then we believe in our heart that it's true. I believe that it's true. So he takes us to a right relationship. And so now we're able to recover from this horrible disease that we have called sin. We're able to recover from that. And now we have purpose. And he says in verse 11, he says, As the scripture said, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, it's simple. It's simple. And part of, part of what we need to understand, part of what we need to grasp is that is that the message that we proclaim, this gospel is so powerful to change and transform people from the sick and dying that they are to now the alive and well. That We can actually have recovery. That we can actually move to a right relationship with the Lord. And it's because of our justification through Christ and Christ alone, through nothing else in our effort. So Paul's just trying to remind us This gospel, it's powerful. And it's so simple. It's so simple for us to understand. You see, it's also sweet. It's also sweet. The gospel is sweet. It's not just something that we we proclaim because we say, oh, well, this person's sick and so they want to get better. No, it's there's a sweetness to it because we understand it, how it changes us. How it changes us so drastically from being so sick and held in captivity and and not understanding righteousness to now understanding that we can have a real right relationship with the Lord 
I mean, do you remember? Like sometimes we just, we have horrible memories when it comes to our own salvation, but do you remember the day that you gave your heart to Jesus? I mean, do you remember how sweet of a moment that was for those of you who have, who have done that? Do you remember that moment? Gosh, I remember it. I, I was young. I was 12 years old. Right? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's difficult to have kind of a full grasp of the gospel when you're 12. But here's what I knew. I knew this, and because it's simple, is that I was sick. I was sick, and I was separated from the Lord. That my sin is what separated me from, from having a right relationship with, with the Lord. So I knew that. I knew that there was something messed up inside of me. And it was at a camp, right, when I heard the gospel proclaimed in such a simple and profound way that my heart just is like, that's true. That's true. That's right. And I remember getting up from my seat in the back row because I was really at camp. I was only there for one reason, right? It's the only reason boys go to camp is for girls, right? But in that moment, it's like everything disappeared from around me, right? And all I saw was the goodness and the sweetness of Jesus. I remember walking forward, and I remember giving my heart to Christ and saying, I want to live for Jesus for the rest of my life. Remember that? Remember how good that was, how sweet it is? Like sometimes we just need to be reminded that it's, we just complicate it so much, but there is power in the gospel. That's why we do missions. That's why we do evangelism. That's why we go halfway across the world to Japan or China or Mexico City or wherever we go, right? It's why we plant churches. Sometimes we forget. We get it all messed up and we get it complicated. But the truth is, is that the gospel is powerful because it transforms people's lives from dead people to alive people. That was you, and that was me. We were once dead, and because we professed our faith in Christ, and we believed in our hearts, yes, not perfectly, but we believed in our hearts that Jesus could change us and transform us, we woke up the next day alive people. That's why we do missions. Because the gospel is powerful, and it changes the hearts of people that we love, that we love. But there is a problem, right? There is a problem in how this whole thing works, right? When we talk about missions, why we do missions, like there is one linchpin in this entire thing, right? Here's the problem, is that if someone doesn't go, if someone doesn't, tell, then people don't hear, and they can't respond. That's what Paul tells us. He says, how can someone believe and confess if they've never heard this? They've never heard it before. Some people don't even know they're sick. Some people don't even know that they're dead. They're just like walking zombies. They have no clue that they're even dead. And so Paul writes in verse 14, he says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them or proclaiming to them? And how can anyone preach or proclaim unless they are sent? As is written, 
How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul makes it clear that someone has to be sent. A preacher or a public herald must be sent. That sent herald must proclaim the good news. The proclaimed good news must be heard. The heard news must be believed. And the belief must be the kind that calls on Jesus for salvation. Sending, proclaiming, hearing, believing, calling on God. So why missions? Like, why do we do this? It's because our Father is a missionary God who sends messengers. Our God is a missionary God. Our Father is a missionary God who sends us as messengers. I love this this, uh, quote from David Bosch. He says, Mission is not primarily an activity of of the church, but an attribute of God. It is God's heart. It is who he is. It's part of his character as ascending God. The Old Testament, God is presented as a sovereign Lord who sends in order to express and complete his mission of redemption. The Hebrew verb that's used to send is found nearly 800 times in the Old Testament. 800 times in the Old Testament. Throughout all the historical books, God is ascending God. Throughout all the poetic books, God is ascending God. Through all the prophetic books, God is ascending God. And, and perhaps the most dramatic illustration of God as ascending God in the Old Testament is what we find in Isaiah chapter 6. In this passage, we catch a glimpse of God's sending nature at its Trinitarian fullness. He says, Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? To this, Isaiah responds, Here am I, send me. The New Testament has sending language that's found not only in the Gospels, but throughout the book of Acts and each of the epistles. The most comprehensive collection of sending language used in the New Testament is found in the Gospel of John, where the word send or sent is used nearly 60 times. The majority of users refer to the title of God as one who sends and of Jesus as the one who is sent. So Jesus makes it clear to us in John chapter 20, verse 21, That he is not only sent by the Father, but now he is sending us as he sends the disciples. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. We serve a Father who is a missionary God. He is a sender. It is part of his character, his attribute. It is not just an activity that we do. When we talk about missions in our church, when we talk about church planting or evangelism or overseas missions, we're not talking about reflection of just something that we do, but it is, it is reflecting the character of our Father because he is ascending God. And so our Father, the missionary God, chooses to send us as messengers to a lost and dying world, to our family, to our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, and those around the world. It is no accident, it is no accident that you work in the place that you work. It is no accident that you live in the place that you live or the place that you go to school. There are no accidents in that. God has purposely sent you to those places because he's a missionary God. He's a sending God. 
Uh, my parents, uh, when I was young, um, when I was in junior high, my parents felt a call um, to missions. Uh, my dad worked in a, in a factory and uh, was just kind of a blue-collar guy. We lived in a nice home, and, uh, but he felt a call to, to missions, partly because he had um, started leading some of his coworkers to Jesus. And it just, this fire just built in him, and it was incredible to see. And so when I was uh, finishing my seventh grade year, my parents decided that they were going to become missionaries, and, which is a pretty radical departure from my life. Okay, So my, parent, my, my parents had never been to Bible college, so we sold everything. We packed up our house and our nice little community, and we moved to, uh, to a Bible college. So basically... My eighth grade year, all through high school, I grew up on a Bible college campus. Like, we lived in a house, but I mowed the president's yard and all the professors. So we just kind of grew up around there, and uh, it, was, it was an interesting way of, of living, right? But my parents had felt called to missions um, because my, my dad's heart had been stirred at work leading people to Christ, but he was really stirred um, because of uh, our heritage. So we're, I'm Scottish. And uh, my dad had done some research, and for whatever reason, he just felt this immense burden for the country of Scotland, um, because it is a, a, just a desolate place when it comes to um, uh, people following Jesus. I mean, the, it is just, it's a really difficult place. And so um, they felt specifically called to Glasgow, Scotland. And so they had went to Bible college and pursued this and um, needed to raise money and all that kind of stuff. So... Um, they gra- or my dad graduated from college and, semi- or, yeah, college and seminary. I graduated from high school, and then they went off to try to raise money so they could go to Glasgow, Scotland. We spent a summer there so my dad could do research, and so it was a beautiful country. Um, but something happened um, after um, my dad graduated, and, and they were pursuing that, and that my dad got sick. And um, he had started having some stomach pains, and so he went to the hospital and found out that he had cancer. Um, he had pancreatic cancer, which, if you know anything about cancer, there's no cure for pancreatic cancer. Um, at least there wasn't then. There's probably more technology today. But at that point, there was no cure for, uh, for pancreatic cancer. Um, and so that put on hold everything my dad was pursuing as far as missions was concerned. And uh, so he went through treatments, went into remission for a little while. He pastored uh, for just a short time in Indiana, and then the cancer came back, and it attacked his liver this time, and the rest of his pancreas, and by the time we found out, he had died about three months later. So my parents just, you know, they had these huge dreams, right? Now, my dad was a great evangelist, and he led lots of people to Jesus as a just result of this fire that God had put in him, but my dad had died, and, and I was still in school in Bible college, and, uh, and so one day, this, this woman had come to chapel, and she came to, to speak. Um, she and her husband had been missionaries. Um, I don't remember what country they are in, but they were missionaries. And so she'd come, and she actually spoke on this passage, uh, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And what she did is she brought, um, when, when he, her and her husband were missionaries in this country, um, they had given their whole lives to proclaiming the gospel to unreached people groups. But... While they were on the mission field, her husband had gotten sick and then had died on the mission field. So here she is, a widow. She's at our chapel, and she's speaking, and she's talking about this particular verse, how beautiful on the feet of those who bring good news. And so what she did is she actually brought a pair of her husband's shoes and just said, who's willing to fill these shoes? Who's, who's willing to fill these shoes 
Like my husband gave his, his heart to, to evangelism and to proclaiming the good news. Who's willing to fill these shoes and to go? Because we, we, we serve ascending God. So I went home and, and, and uh, uh, I'd seen my mother sometime that week and I was like, man, that was just an incredible story. It was deeply moving. So I, I told my mom this story. And uh, so then for my graduation, what my mom had done is she had actually got my dad's preaching shoes and she mounted them on a plaque and then she put it on the, underneath it, the passage on Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Get a little... She did it so that she can remind me. She can remind me there's something beautiful about feet, right? Something beautiful about those who share and bring the good news, right? There's nothing pretty about these feet, I can tell you that. There's nothing beautiful. I have not seen one beautiful pair of feet in my life, right? Feet are not all that attractive. Unless unless they arrive just in time, right? Arrive just in time to someone who is so desperately sick, who is dying without Jesus, then those feet are the most beautiful feet you've ever seen. That's what God is calling us to. That's what he's inviting us to on mission. Let's pray together.